Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to The Other Hand, a podcast brought to you by CJP Economics, a collaboration between Jim Power and Chris Johns, where we discuss the intersection between politics, finance, and economics. Our back catalogue of podcasts can be found at our Substack website, and that Substack site also contains our extensive body of written work. Thanks for listening and reading. If you like our work, please share with your friends and sign up to our newsletter. Good morning, Jim. Welcome to the latest episode of The Other Hand. We never say this, do we? But I think we have a packed agenda today. We've got this week a couple of very important central bank meetings. We've already had one from Asia out in Australia, which was interesting in the way that they did things. I think the controversy over Sinn Féin and its comments about the Department of Finance's chief economist is worth a mention at least. There's interesting things going on, as always, in China, communism and COVID, uh, some alliteration there, um, with a story about Disney in China as well. I want to talk a little bit about Ukraine and what some unexpected developments are happening there. Tons going on in the UK, from ministerial redundancy payments all the way through to Suella Braverman's performance in the House of Commons yesterday. That's worth a mention. But other things going on in the UK include house prices, uh, the first fall in a long time. We've had a manufacturing PMI out this morning showing a lot of weakness. And I want to mention pro-cyclical macroeconomic policies, a very old-fashioned concept. Also from the UK, we've had yet another big, big oil company, BP, reporting bumper profits echoed across the Atlantic in oil company profits there. And if we have time, I'd like to talk about the US dollar in the wake of a recent trip of mine to the United States. But first, I'd like to open with, uh, I know that you want to talk about a couple of small uh, pieces of Irish economic news. Yeah, good morning, Chris. Um, Not not a lot happening in Ireland at the moment. Um, In a few days' time, we're going to have the end of October 
exchequer returns, which I think will be interesting. And I'll be watching very closely what's happening on the corporation tax side. Um, and perhaps it's too early to see any chinks in that particular armor at this stage. But following our discussion last Friday about what's happening in the tech sector in the United States, I think that corporation tax take will be well worth monitoring on a monthly basis over the coming year. Um, this morning, Bank of Ireland released its latest um, economic pulse index. This is basically an index of confidence that includes business and consumer confidence and it fell the business component of it fell to a 21 month low because not surprisingly businesses are concerned about the global economic news about rising interest rates and about the intense level of uncertainty out there um perhaps somewhat interestingly the consumer part of the index actually has recovered a little bit and that is in the immediate aftermath of what was a very generous 11.3 billion budget package on September 27th. And that bounce in consumer confidence was also reflected in, KB, in KBC's annual um, consumer sentiment survey. Uh, but it's also reflected in the latest opinion polls with the two key parties in government, um, Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil, actually experiencing a little bit of a bounce albeit from pretty low levels in the a couple of very recent um opinion polls so perhaps the fiscal stance being adopted by governments the fiscal support that's been given to households particularly in the face of this significant cost of living crisis is now starting to pay some political dividends. But as we've often discussed, there is a long way to go. There's a lot of water to cross under the bridge before we get to the next general election. Um, you mentioned in your introduction, um, Sinn Féin and uh, the, the, the revelations at the weekend that Ono Brin, who is the housing spokesperson for Sinn Féin, um, suggested some time back that um, John McCarthy, who's the chief economist in the Department of Finance, um, will be sacked by him or by a Sinn Féin government. Um, that is very, very sinister stuff. He has since um, apologized for that. and um, But but still, it, it, it is quite worrying because if you think about what the first thing Liz Truss did when she became prime minister was to sack the most senior civil servant in the treasury. So th this is all very, very concerning stuff. And if I was an observer on the outside of what's happening here in Ireland, it's these sorts of political developments I'd be watching very, very closely. Yeah, if I might just say that um, it might be a bit of a stretch, but one of the jobs that I see us doing on this podcast is joining dots, sometimes in surprising ways. And that's the insight that we can offer people and I've wondered several times over the last couple of weeks about any lessons for Sinn Féin from the Liz Truss experience. And I think there are some. You've just mentioned an obvious couple of dots to be joined there. The sacking of a senior civil servant um, is, as you say, sinister. But the other thing I'd say about it is that it's spectacularly stupid. There was a, quite a good piece this morning in the Irish Times by Gerard Howlin, and he talked about this and he said, well, the, the right thing to do with, with, with advisors, with civil servants, with chief economists 
is always to praise them and then ignore them. If, if you are a determined policymaker, you don't need to create waves. So in the first instance, it's a very silly, stupid, unnecessary move, and it smacks of political immaturity, if not naivety. Um, the second thing I would say more generally about the Liz Truss-Sinn uh, Féin connection, if there is one, is that if you indulge in fantasy economic policies, you are going to get yourself into trouble these days. And it's interesting that in Italy, the new, um, she's been called neo-fascist leader of, of Italy, seems to have learned lessons from Liz Truss and has rode back on some of her more fantastic policies. So I wonder whether Sinn Féin will take lessons from this. We described their policies in fantastic terms, uh, and I use that word advisedly, several times. So I wonder if they will take the necessary lessons that eventually economic policy has to confront economic reality. And we've always said that a lot of Sinn Féin policies do not notwithstanding their claims to always have them fully costed. So it's interesting. And um, I take some encouragement as somebody that would not be a Sinn Féin voter, that just maybe, just maybe the, the Sinn Féin um, high watermark has been reached. As you said, the opinion polls are merely, merely hinting at that, if that. Uh, but the other thing that Howlin said that, that again struck a chord with me is how hopeless the Irish coalition government have been encountering the rise of Sinn Féin. Uh, and I think that's an important point to be made. And I think you, people like Howlin and others, particularly in the coalition, should be hammering away at the contradictions, at the fantasy policies of Sinn Féin. One of the things that you would hope will flow out of what has happened in the UK over the last seven or eight weeks with the quasi quartangs mini-budget um, where the markets certainly won out at the end of the day and forced a change of leadership in that country. So that there is a salutary lesson there, I think, for any aspiring party of government, that if you actually deliver on your very populist type agenda, that there is a distinct risk it will backfire very, very badly. So I would suspect that the bright people in Sinn Féin, and there are a lot of men there, um, we'll look at what happened in the UK and we'll learn lessons from that. Uh, but as I say, the Ono Brin comment about the chief economist in the Department of Finance, uh, that's not sensible politics. It certainly isn't. And um, I, I think you're absolutely correct that the best thing to do is to listen to him and then ignore the advice if, if that's how you are so inclined. But to suggest you'll come in and sack um, does not send out a very good message. Um, across the water in the UK, uh, there's some extraordinary stuff still going on. Um, to me, one of the more telling interventions of recent days and one of the more sinister interventions was the Home Secretary, Suella Braverman, um, talking about an invasion of asylum seekers on the south coast of England. Uh, that kind of has, re has resonances of 1066 and, and so on. But... Um, the immigration minister, Robert Jenrick, is a guy I know absolutely nothing about, but he came out this morning suggesting that he would not demonize people coming to the UK to seek a better life. So perhaps there are some sensible people in the um, Tory government who are actually not terribly happy with these fascist type statements from somebody like Suella Braverman. Um, I think one of the biggest mistakes Rishi Sunak has made 
um, since assuming power um, a few days ago at this stage, uh, was the reappointment of Suella Braverman. I think the optics of that um, have been really bad, given that she was sacked a few days previously for um, breaking the law in another respect. So I think Risi needs to be very, very careful about how he proceeds from here. Uh, but her intervention was absolutely extraordinary, and it's good to see some blowback on that. Yeah, Jenrick has, has been described as the Home Secretary-in-waiting that he's been lined up for Braverman's job when she inevitably resigns. Um, whether it is inevitable or not, I've no idea with this lot. We we get a resignation at regular intervals in the UK. Sometimes they act like a 49A bus and come along all at once, but uh, we, we are almost overdue one now. So Braverman, I think, is likely to go at some point because she's an extraordinarily weak Home Secretary. She's an extraordinary right-wing ideologue. The reason why she is in her job is because Sunak had to appease the ultra-right wing of his party with her appointment. And as you say, she used neo-fascist language yesterday. Describing it as an invasion was frankly both sinister and ridiculous. An invasion implies a threat from whoever is doing the invading. And there are lots of things that immigrants coming in on small boats represent, but they do not represent a threat, physical or otherwise, to anybody in the UK. Obviously, people will then jump up and down and say, what about crime and all those other things, pressure on the NHS? That's not the normal threats that we associate with invaders uh, storming our beaches, which is the last, as you say, the last time that happened in the UK was in 1066. There are so many aspects to this immigration debate. We shouldn't spend a whole podcast on it, but it's worth just spending a couple of minutes, particularly for our Irish audience who may not understand what's going on. The first thing that has happened is that we think that about 40,000 people are going to come across in small boats, maybe a bit more than that. The year isn't over yet in 2022, which is a massive increase on previous years. That's not a massive increase in immigrants or asylum seekers because the other routes which they traditionally came in on to the UK have been closed down. One of the key ones for a lot of these asylum seekers used to be lorries coming across either on ferries or through the Channel Tunnel. And they've been quite good at shutting that route down. So this really is a last resort to pay people smugglers to put them on these um, very flimsy rubber boats. One small thing that's worth mentioning about the, the, the people coming in on small boats is that over the course of the last year, the number of Albanian single young males has gone from nothing to a very large number coming in. And nobody is quite sure why. There are suspicions about their coming in for all sorts of reasons, not least to join Albanian criminal gangs, but that's not the only reason, and we don't actually know. But the extraordinary statistic is that so far, over the last year or so, maybe as much as 2% of the adult male population of Albania have come across on small boats into the UK which is just uh, the most extraordinary thing and is, is mystifying a lot of people as to why that is the case, because Albania is not uh, Afghanistan. Albania is not Syria. Um, it may or may not be the most pleasant place on earth to live, but nevertheless, uh, I don't think there is that kind of insecurity, both physical and economic, present in, in Albania as it is in those other countries that, that we might mention. So, I think there is a need to understand that the immigration debate in the UK has many complexities, is very nuanced, 
But when we do have this ultra-right-wing Home Secretary who has been using her private phone and violating rules about national security, that's a real problem. Uh, There are all sorts of other things going on with respect to what she has said that she's done, what she may or may not have done, that I think will lead to her resignation or her sacking. I'm not quite sure which. Um, But nevertheless, this immigration debate trundles on in the UK and they've got to get it sorted out. But like a lot of things in the UK, they don't seem administratively capable of sorting it out. One of the things that the UK craves at the moment across a whole range of areas is administrative competence. And when you have a bunch of ideologues running things, you get administrative chaos. Because the one thing ideologues don't know how to do is actually run something in a competent, bureaucratically efficient way. They're more interested in spouting off uh, their right-wing ideas than they are the hard graft of actual government. And again, I loop back to our comments about Sinn Féin. I wonder whether those are two dots worth joining as well, is that parties that are motivated by ideology rather than practical politics often come unstuck in the way that they are in the UK. But Jim, let's move on from that. Uh, A couple of things that are happening this week are some big central bank meetings. And we've had today a rate rise in Australia, uh, smaller than expected for the second time running, which is interesting and I think quite sensible. And I would urge both the Bank of England and the Federal Reserve to follow suit. But I fully expect that they won't. Because as I have said so many times on this podcast, raising interest rates to get your inflation rate down to 2%, it's 10% in Europe at the moment, not too far off that in the United States, means absolutely crushing your economy. Because an awful lot of the inflation, and it varies on both sides of the Atlantic, is inflation that has got nothing to do with interest rates. And that's food and energy inflation. Of course, it's other Uh, non-food, non-energy inflation as well, and they've got to get that under control. But it's been noticeable to me this week that some prominent bears of the US equity market, because they've been bearish about inflation, bearish about interest rates, are starting to change their tone. We had, I think, Morgan Stanley, big global investment bank, saying that the peak in inflation is either here or very close to being here. And another commentator who's been very successful in calling inflation, um, I think his name's David Rosenberg, uh, a classic monetarist, is pointing to the fact that money supply growth, which is a very old-fashioned concept we don't mention very often on this podcast, it's gone out of fashion, talking about money supply, but the key M2 measure of money supply, he stressed yesterday, has turned negative in the United States. He believes that the M2 measure successfully forecast the rise in inflation And that because it's turned negative, it is now forecasting that inflation will fall. And more generally, and part of that mechanism is that inflation will fall because the economy will slow. And as you rightly say, um, the chairman of the Federal Reserve, Jerome Powell's favorite economic measure, we are told, is the slope of the yield curve, which you mentioned earlier on, which is the difference between short term and long term interest rates. That is a classic indicator. It's only an indicator. It's not a perfect forecaster, but it's a blumming good indicator in saying that the US economy is close to recession. Thinking back of my days studying economics and the quantity theory of money, MV equals PQ, that's money supply multiplied by the velocity of circulation equals price level multiplied by the quantity of economic activity. And that came on the back of Friedman's view 
that inflation was always and everywhere a monetary phenomenon. And there are people, and there's one commenter to our Substack account on a regular basis who just believes there's been way too much money printed over the last decade and that there are no surprises that there is an inflation problem in Europe at the moment. And um, indeed, he was commenting over the weekend on the Substack Substack site as to why we were critical of what the European Central Bank is doing, you know, given that there are a few signs of slowdown in the Eurozone economy. There are significant signs of slowdown in the Eurozone economy, and I suspect that technically the economy is about to go into recession. So I I don't see the strong argument for um, increasing interest rates aggressively from here from a European Central Bank perspective. And I, I guess reflecting what you were saying there, about the cause of inflation in the euro area. This morning, we had import price inflation in Germany, 29.8% year on year, which is dramatic stuff. Imported energy is up by 135.1%. And within that, natural gas up 252%. So what are interest rate rises going to do about that, Jim? Exactly. Food price inflation, imported food price inflation up 25%. So... Increasing interest rates to cause economic recession is certainly not going to tackle those causes of inflation. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. With one possible exception, mate, with one possible exception, if Europe gets its interest rates up relative to the United States, yeah. which they're chasing rather than leading at the moment, the euro, the euro, the euro will strengthen. Yeah. And the euro can strengthen or we can exchange rates can do anything for all sorts of reasons. But interest rate differentials, the gap between countries' interest rates are one important driver of exchange rates, by no means the only one. For me, the the fundamental driver of an exchange rate is whether or not it's currently at the right price. And it's a bit like any other asset price, house prices, stock market prices, whatever, the price of fine art. If it gets completely out of whack between what we call um, economic fundamentals, then you know with almost certainty that that fundamental out of whackness is going to be corrected. What we economists never know, of course, is when it will be corrected. It could take years. Sometimes it takes decades. Um, So forecasting, as always, uh, be very, very careful. On a recent visit to the United States, the overriding impression I got of America, amongst many different impressions, was that it is now, for a visitor from the euro area, massively and egregiously expensive. I paid in a very ordinary bar um, over 10 euros for a a normal-sized bottle of beer which I found extraordinary. And I could list a whole host of other prices I paid. And it told me, yes, the US has had a bit of an inflation problem. We know that. But it also told me that the dollar is egregiously overvalued. So at some point, the euro is going to go up again. 
And I would urge anybody listening that's involved in this uh, from a whole host of perspectives um, to think about hedging their dollar exposure over the medium to longer term, not necessarily the short term. I'm not making any forecasts, but I would be confident over the medium to longer term that overvalued dollar is going to correct itself because usually these things do have natural correction mechanism. So whether it's interest rates from the ECB or just a natural correction, the euro is going to rise and it will help that inflation picture that you just painted. Because of course, all of those import prices that you mentioned are affected by the actual prices of the stuff being dug out the ground or grown in the fields. Absolutely. But it's also the rate at which it's exchanged in terms of the euro dollar. So there's nothing that the ECB can do about um, the price of oil, the price of gas, the price of foodstuffs actually grown in the relevant countries, but it can do something a bit about the exchange rate. I don't think it can do very much at the moment, but I think if it was patient, it would see the euro rise and cure some of this problem. It doesn't actually need to raise interest rates to the point where everybody says, wow, I can get a better return on my euro assets, so therefore I'm going to buy them. Um, I think that would result in the uh, economy tanking completely. But those, those, are, those are my views. On the economics, one of the things that is worth mentioning about the UK is that we've had two pieces of economic data uh, only today, which is that, that, first of all, the house prices have fallen for the first month um, on this particular measure for well over a year. The Halifax, a bank in the UK, has a 0.9% fall in UK house prices over the course of the last month. And we've got some ancillary data suggesting that rents, for example, in offices are starting to fall consistent with economic slowdown. And house prices are one of those asset prices that were, that had to come down because of uh, fundamental overvaluation. We also had a UK manufacturing purchasing managers index, which is one of those leading indicators telling you what's going on in key sectors of the economy. And that fell to 46.2 from 48.4. And that suggests that the UK economy um, or at least it reinforces something that we think we know about the UK economy, which is that significant parts of it, if not all of it, are now actually in recession because a number below 50 suggests actual contraction. So the news from the UK is not good. Yeah, that that manufacturing purchasing managers index is back at the lowest level since the beginning of COVID. And if you think back to the beginning of COVID, you know, we got the initial shock when the restrictions were put in place when the global pandemic was declared. Um, and then we got the Bank of England intervening aggressively, cutting interest rates, engaging in massive bond buying or quantitative easing. Um, and we saw significant fiscal expansion. And, you know, that eventually gave rise to a strong recovery in that index, as well as um, most other economic indicators. But here we are now with that index back at those levels again, and policy is going in the opposite direction. Um, the Bank of England is continuing to increase interest rates, and you know we're going to get another big one this week. Uh, yesterday, Rishi Shunak, the Prime Minister, and Jeremy Hunt, the Chancellor of the Exchequer, met to discuss fiscal policy. Uh, there's going to be an economic statement on November 17th setting out the fiscal way forward for the UK uh, but the comments coming out of that after that meeting were that very tough decisions will be taken on raising taxes and on cutting spending. So, uh, you know, it's 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 such a different scenario today than it was back in March, April 2020. So you'd be really, really concerned about where the UK economy goes over the next 12, 18 months. 
Um, but markets like it. I mean, the 10-year bond yield in the UK at 3.42% at the moment. Um, sterling is back up at 115 against the dollar. Yeah, there are a couple of things to, to say about that. Firstly, the contrast between Ireland and the UK on fiscal policy, on spending and taxation policy, couldn't be starker. You had a big fiscal boost, effectively, to the economy with the $11.3 billion giveaway budget, quite appropriately so, in my view. And now we are being told daily with these briefings from the UK finance ministry, the Treasury, that we are going to get a big fiscal tightening. My taxes are going up in a couple of weeks' time, sadly. Um, but, you know, it's inevitable. We've been told it's happening. It's partly a consequence of the mess that Liz Truss has bequeathed us. It's partly just the fiscal hole that they were in anyway. But it raises, an, you, you talked about the old-fashioned Friedmanite money supply equation uh, earlier on, and I'm not going to talk algebra now, but we used to, in the old days, talk about the macroeconomic policy stance and ask questions about whether it is pro or counter-cyclical. And one of the things that you're taught when economists are still in short trousers is that that the overall stance of policy, if it is to be appropriate, if it is to help the economy, it should always be counter-cyclical. It should always be tapping on the brakes when things are expanding, and it should be adding to the tapping the accelerator when things are contracting and that the worst kind of macroeconomic policy stance is for it to be pro-cyclical to make booms boomier which lead to inflation and to make busts recessions much worse than they would otherwise be and unfortunately historically particularly in the UK policy has often been pro-cyclical the macroeconomic policy mix is, is no longer talked about very much. It's not fashionable because since the advent of independent central banks, stabilization of the economy, the pro or counter-cyclical stuff, and usually counter-cyclical, was left to central banks. They were the ones that controlled the economic cycle, more or less successfully for many years until recently, it has to be said. And fiscal policy was set for other objectives. But if you look at the UK, as you just hinted there, we now have an unambiguous pro-cyclical economic stance. In other words, you have the economy for the reasons that we've discussed with the numbers that we've just mentioned and lots of other numbers we could mention suggesting that the economy at best is stagnant and is probably contracting. So the economy is going down and both fiscal and monetary policy, spending and taxation policies from the Treasury and monetary policy from the Bank of England, interest rate policy and quantitative tightening which more or less is starting today, I believe, um, is pointing in the same direction. It is very pro-cyclical. And in this particular point in the cycle, we're going down. And so the stance of macro policy is pushing down on it. It's tapping. It's not just tapping on the brakes, it's stamping on the brakes. So I am really worried about the UK economic outlook from a macro perspective. I think that policy is clearly pro-cyclical. It's pushing the economy down when it's already on its knees. So I think it's right to expect uh, the, the UK economy to put in a very poor performance over the next year or so. And me- meanwhile, property prices in Covent Garden and Soho are reported this morning to be in decline. Uh, looking at the United States, we have the midterm elections um, a week today. Um, Biden was out yesterday talking about the war profiteering that the energy companies are engaging in, and he's threatening a windfall tax on earnings that are not reinvested in production. And he says he would 
consider passing all of those windfall taxes back to the consumer and suggesting it would knock 50 cents off the price of a um, a gallon of petrol. And, uh, you know, clearly <laughs> he, he's doing this ahead of midterm elections. But uh, wh- what do you feel at this stage about windfall taxes? I think that they um, are appropriate, particularly given the behavior of those energy companies. It's said by the energy companies themselves and their defenders in the economics profession, their defenders in parliaments, that the right way to do this is to say, okay, um, let them have their profits, provided they are used for reinvestment, investment in, uh, sadly, fossil fuels, but also in the newer renewable side of their businesses. BP this morning announced in excess of $8 billion quarterly profit and a huge increase in share buybacks, effectively dividends for shareholders. They didn't announce a massive increase in capital spending relative to expectations. They're just giving the money to shareholders. They're inviting uh, finance ministers the world over to come on to them and to take the money away from them. And I think... uh, whether or not you agree with it in theory, windfall taxes, and there, are, there is a huge debate about whether windfall taxes are a good idea or not, because I think they have to be symmetrical, because you have to ask the question, what do you do? Um, as it has happened in the past, the very recent past, oil prices for a short time were negative. And it is perfectly possible that one day when the Ukraine war is over, that energy prices will once again fall back. Do you then so step in to help subsidy, these? Yeah. Do you step in? So I think that, that it, it is, as always, a, a very compli- much more complicated argument than the narrative would have. So if you park that argument and just simply say, OK, well, let's look at what the the energy companies are actually doing. And just giving all this money back to shareholders, um, I think, as I say, is just an invitation to finance ministers to just come on and tax. And I think the energy companies know that themselves. So I think that windfall taxes, more of them are coming. Um, it, it, given how cash strapped the UK government it is, I would expect more from the UK. Whether Biden actually does it or not remains to be seen. Um, it, a lot will depend on what happens next week in the midterms, because whatever he does may or may not be subject to congressional oversight, congressional veto. And certainly in the Republican Party, there are lots of friends of fossil fuel companies who will be strongly resistant to this. But uh, I think, yes, we are going to get more windfall taxes one way or another. Chris, can I take you down into Latin America? Um, at, at the weekend, the right-wing authoritarian leader, Jair Bolsonaro, um, was elected out of office. Um, I don't think he's conceded defeat yet, but Luis Inacio Lula da Silva, um, with 50.9% of the vote, um, is back in power. Um, and he served two terms between 2003-2010, proven to be a deeply corrupt politician. And um, I I, I was really interested yesterday at the the sort of liberati out there were expressing delight at the fact that Bolsonaro was gone. And I wouldn't disagree with them on that. But um, Lula da Silva as a replacement, um, I don't think he, he is the shining light he's being set up to be at the moment. And I was kind of amused this morning with um, reports of some of the speeches he's made in recent times expressing um, a lot of very negative thoughts about Ukraine and about um, Zelensky. 
So per- perhaps Lula da Silva isn't exactly the beacon of hope that he's being portrayed at the moment, but it's just indicative of the political malaise in one of the most populated and potentially prosperous countries in the world um, at the moment. Yeah, it's, it's one important aspect of this is that people are drawing graphs showing uh, under Bolsonaro how much of the Amazon rainforest disappeared, yes. was cut down. Yes. And mostly it's cut down for cattle grazing. So just always be aware when you are eating your beef, um, ask where it's come from and whether or not the Amazon has had to be cut down uh, because of it. And under Lula, the uh, rainforest didn't disappear anywhere near this, to the same extent. Correlation is not causation, but there is much environmental hope being expressed in Lula's re-election. And I think for all of our sakes, for the Amazon rainforest sake, I hope that correlation does turn out to be causation and, and is repeated. But as you say, there are many aspects to Lula's policy stance, to the things that he says and does that leave a lot to be desired, not least what he has said about Zelensky, what he's said about the war in Ukraine. He seems to think that the war in Ukraine is as much Zelensky's fault as it is Putin's, which is quite an incredible thing. But I have to say, Jim, that um, uh, the Pope has said similar things. So, you know, Mr. Lula is is not alone in these um, somewhat strange views. Um, But it's also a strand of thinking in America. And there are plenty of Republicans already who have voted against Uh, giving increased aid to Ukraine. And if they do gain control of one or both houses next week, I think Zelensky is going to be very worried about the prospects for further aid from the United States. Mm. Yeah. And and meanwhile, over the weekend, we saw Russian missile strikes on Ukrainian infrastructure and claiming it's retaliation. Can I I correct you there, Jim? Can I correct you there? They were not Russian missiles. They were Iranian. And Sorry, Iranian. Iranian drones. Um, it, Used fasc- by the Russians, though. It's a fascinating uh, aspect of this, the way Iran is becoming involved in the war in Ukraine. There are many different dimensions to it. The Ukrainian football union yesterday asked uh, FIFA to kick Iran out of the World Cup because of its human rights abuses in Iran and also because there are lots of Iranian drones being dropped on cities and towns and villages in Ukraine at the moment. Um, I'm sure it's coincidental that uh, Ukraine would be one of the teams that might actually uh, take the place of Iran in the unlikely event that it is kicked out. But that's just me being slightly cynical. But you have to say that the Ukrainian Football Association does have a case. It depends on your stance on politics and sport. Um, But there are lots of different dimensions to this, not least the dropping of drones. Um, One of the unexpected consequences of the US withdrawal from Afghanistan, that chaotic process that we saw on our screens a while ago, is that American trained Afghan special forces have crossed the border into Iran to take refuge from the Taliban, fearing reprisals because they worked with the Americans. Now the Iranians are kicking them out. They're deporting them or at least threatening to in some cases. And this mercenary group in Russia, the Wagner Group, you may have heard of them, Mm. um, have been present in Iran recruiting these special forces saying, um, if you are kicked out, you're going to go back to Afghanistan where the Taliban are going to kill you. Come and work for us in Ukraine for $1,500 a month. We'll give you and your families safe passage and safe refuge when you are there. And if you fight for us for a while, we'll give you some money 
and therefore you will be safe from the Taliban. So er, the Iranian influence on this war is considerable and um, is worth watching to the point where a special envoy to Iran um, in the United States yesterday at a Carnegie Endowment Foundation talk said that the US has lost interest in the talks with Iran over their nuclear program, which again is worth keeping an eye on and is a very sinister development. And um, Oleg Tinkov, um, a Russian oligarch, he renounced his Russian citizenship over the weekend, said he didn't want to be associated with a fascist country. He is uh, nevertheless fascinating stuff. But he is subject to sanctions. He's been named as uh, somebody that is sanctioned. So clearly somebody somewhere thinks he's done something dodgy. So we shall see. Listen, Chris, I think we've probably um, covered enough stuff. Um, I wanted to talk about what Musk is doing at Twitter, but I guess we can return to that at a later stage. Um, And just for the listeners out there who are wondering um, if I'd make it to the podcast today, uh, I survived the Dublin City Marathon. I was cursing yesterday why they put stairs into houses these days. But um, anyway, I survived. Um, I live to fight another day. Talking of both that and what you just said about Twitter, I do think you should tweet photographs of your feet, Jim. (laughs) You've seen my big toes, Chris. Good luck. You have been listening to Chris Johns and Jim Power on the other hand. We hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please sign up to our Substack account, www.cjpeconomics.substack.com. You can download our podcasts on Apple, Spotify and other good podcast platforms. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. quince.com slash style.